Welcome to the Circularity Edge podcast, where we discuss the latest news and perspectives on the circular economy and issues relating to social, environmental, and economic sustainability. Join us every week when we discuss what's needed to create a sustainable, circular economy worldwide. Now, here is your host, Ken Alston. Hello, this is Ken Alston with the Circularity Edge podcast. And today I have with me Len Laycock. He's the founder of Horizontal. On the website, it describes uh, Horizontal as a bed, in fact, a new bed for a changed earth. Welcome to the Circularity Edge podcast, Len. Well, nice to be with you, Ken. So first of all, tell us something about the the startup of Horizontal. What what motivated you to design a new bed? And then we'll get into a little bit about what it is and and how different it is. Well, I'll try and make a long story short. Is, um, you know, about 25 years ago, you know, uh, I started reading so much about climate change. And and I would also read at the same time uh, a lot of stories that were debunking it. And Mm -hmm. I was reading both types of stories in what I thought were credible publications in Canada, like the Globe and Mail, for example, or in the United States, the New York Times. And I wondered what the hell is going on because these things couldn't be reconciled. So I started my own journey of investigation. And that's been an ongoing thing all of these years. And I had a moment in, uh, uh, in the early 2000s where on a February day, this is Vancouver, where we have a you know, the mildest climate in Canada. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was an unusually pleasant February day. And I decided to wash the car at the back of the house. And my son, who's a a man now, was a young boy at that time. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and we were, he was kind of playing around and maybe helping me a bit. And he told me that he was concerned about, um, you know, climate and maybe the world might end as a child Mm -hmm. would do. And of course, it, it, it cut me right in my heart. And, right, uh, in a very innocent and yet very direct way, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so um, I resolved to start doing things, and I did in the work I was doing at that time, and I was in the furniture business then. I have a long background in the furniture business. I was a, the marketing director for IKEA Canada, and oh, I also okay. helped, I helped IKEA launch in the United States in the Philadelphia area in Plymouth Meeting. So I've done work with them nationally and internationally mm-hmm. in, in, in Europe and Scandinavia. And so, uh, you know, I, I designed this bed and I started thinking that, you know, I know the problems with bedding because, you know, I can't, I don't know, have any particular expertise about the energy industry. So I, I'm not the guy to come to for, for solar solutions or wind power or geothermal, but I know a lot about uh, furniture marketing and what goes into furniture and mm-hmm. when i when i look at beds they're to the 96 97 level they're made from polyurethane foam polyurethane foam is made from oil oil uh, turned into petrochemicals and then turned into foam and um, it has a lot of nasty stuff in it and and uh, human beings in the western world are spending one third of their entire time that they live on the planet lying on polyurethane foam with all of these chemicals uh, without even mentioning the fire retardants. And you know, that's a long term exposure. If you're eight hours a night on polyurethane foam all your life, that is a long term exposure to these chemicals. Right. Um, in about 1980, state of California, 
identified a, a chemical called TDI, toluene mm -hmm. diisocyanate, as a carcinogen. One of the two main components for making phones, yeah. Yes, I see you're well aware. And in fact, you can't I am, really I am a chemist by original training. Yeah. There you go. So if you don't have that TDI, you're out of business. And this stuff is used everywhere. And of course, even when the bed is finished with and someone buys another bed, and in North America, in the United States, for example, the turnover for bed replacement is about seven or eight years. Mm. So, and, that's how that, and then they get a new one. So even when you're finished with the bed, even if you were to grind it all up or just stuff it in a hole, those chemicals never go away. You may not see them anymore because they eventually turn to particulate, but they're with us forward in time for generations. And in the case of the, the fire retardants that have gone into these beds and other household items, the chemicals, the, these chemicals are actually so embedded in humans now that about 99% of all mother's milk, if, if it's tested, is found to contain some of these chemicals. So even I was polar like, bears in the Antarctic. Yeah, and even though at the time these things were hitting me, my son was past breastfeeding age and was just starting school. I remember my wife feeding my son when he was an infant. Mm -hmm. And I thought of all the mothers doing that. And the idea that a chemical corporation could insert itself in, into a woman's body and then into a newborn baby I found that repugnant mm -hmm. as just as a concept that we tolerate these kinds of things. So that's where it started. So I did decide to design a bed and I did one and it was good, uh, but it wasn't good enough. And so I put the idea aside for a few years and I came back to it in earnest about two and a half to three years ago. And I set out to make uh, a bed that would be very comfortable and would do no harm as, we, as, the, as is the doctor's creed. Do no mm -hmm. harm. And that turned out to be challenging, but we found the right resources and expertise in the different areas and the different materials. And um, I have to report to you, Ken, in a manner of speaking, we failed because 0.2% of the bed still contains some petroleum. But I'm I noticed that. I noticed that on yeah. the website, the, the elusive 0.2%. But you're yeah, working so on it, which is you know, the other good part of the story. Yes. And so, so I think if we can do that out of the gate, a small company in Vancouver, Canada, and actually in Deep Cove, which is a little village adjacent to Vancouver. And if we can do that out of the gate, what's the excuse for the entire multi, multi, multi billion dollar betting industry and indeed any corporation that makes consumer goods uh, for human beings to use? There are no excuses. There's absolutely none that are credible. And so that's why we've made it because it's needed. And we also want it to be, uh, in addition to being successful and adopted by people, we also want it to be a, a kind of business case study that these things can be solved. Right, so right. That, that's, that's a snapshot. And, and that's where we, we're starting and, and we're just getting underway now and response is rather good. So for me, you know, I, I have... Um... The, of the last 20 years, 17 of those years, I worked with uh, Bill McDonough and Michael Brongart. At, uh, oh, my, the, yeah. I, I ran the consulting for McDonough Brongart Design Chemistry. So we did mm -hmm. all the deep dives into many, many materials from many different uh, um, you know, business areas, different, different product yeah. areas. And Michael was 
one of the ones who early ones who was doing um, testing of what comes off the you know any any product and he would put a mm -hmm. TV set in a you know in an environment and sample the air what happens when a TV set just sits there what's it yes. off gassing and that's sort of what you're referring to with the with the TDIs in the bed and that you are there and there's, there's something going on but you you can't see it and uh, you know the other you know, Michael's partner Bill um, in the M of MBDC um, <clears throat> he would always talk about cost performance performance and aesthetics as being the three main parameters that a designer typically uses and is expected to you know perform against obviously you've got to try and make it to a price point that you can sell and make a, a profit on and the, and the product has to perform so and then it, it also has to look right and i noticed in some of the materials that you, that you have online you actually talked about beauty that's some not something that everybody talks about and so in aesthetics can just be oh it looks nice you actually used a, a specific word beauty so tell me a little bit about the beauty of what you can also you know, some elements of the performance side of the, the bed you've designed. Well, on, on the question of beauty, you know, the, the poets and the songwriters often address the question and there's outer beauty and there's inner beauty. And uh, what we've tried to do is imbue our product with both. So we have a very uh, spare and simple design. It, it's minimalist. Um, uh, what could be new in bed design? I mean, essentially, if you look at all beds, if you put a mattress of any type and put it on a foundation, it's a big rectangular box. Uh, I've always thought they look clunky and heavy and bulky. Um, uh, but mind you, I spent some time in Scandinavia. So, right. you know, you, you get influenced by that. And yep, um, yep. Yours is so very sleek and, and slim. Yeah, it's, it's lean. And, and so that's an appearance thing. That's an outer mm -hmm. beauty. Part of the inner beauty of that design is that empty space below the bed, and you with your background with chemistry, you mm -hmm. will appreciate that's not empty space. <laughs> I mean, right. it, there's air. And so one of the things in studying sleep, I, I, I became aware that we take an average of 6,400 breaths a night. And this is the period of time where we're rejuvenating our bodies. And right. um, physically, uh, mentally, all of that, and uh, and getting getting recharged for the next day and so on. But you know, uh, the the uh, the quality of the air you breathe any time of day uh, or night is important. So we designed the bed so there would be room underneath and air can move. Most beds have a massive uh, foundation underneath. Anybody who talks about the bed breathing in 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 that scenario really is is you know. Uh, talking nonsense. You have to have the ability for air to move. So air can go under that bed and when that air goes up through the bed, we have a, a slat suspension system that's double layered and it's extremely open. Uh, so air can pass through. And, and then unusually uh, for beds, our core of our mattress, which is a Dunlop latex, it's only three inches thick. And of course, people tend to associate a thicker, deeper bed with more comfort. But then again, I can just remind them of that old uh, fairy tale about the princess and the pea. It didn't matter yes. how the bed was piled up, she could still feel it. So, right, right. so, so really, uh, our suspension system is so responsive, it, it doesn't just receive the body, it pushes back and it 
puts the body and the spine in particular into a good alignment. And we found that when we put a thicker and thicker mattress on it in the testing, it really dulled the performance of the suspension. So we found the sweet spot of having mm. enough padding above it uh, to give uh, a sense of softness and comfort that humans love, uh, but also to give proper support. And then of course, on top of that, latex is, is uh, a natural wool batting and so on. And another point of beauty would even be the wool batting because this is how far we've gone. We found a producer in a tiny village in Northern California who has some sheep. And those are the sheep we draw our wool from. And these people practice their, their shepherding and their produ production of sheep to the level that it's cruelty free. So a lot of the listeners wouldn't be familiar with the term musling where they actually cut the skin around the bottoms of the, of the sheep away, you know, which is quite a cruel thing to do. And, yeah. and that's common practice in the wool industry. But these people take good care of their sheep. And, and, and we think that's as important as taking good care of people. So when, it comes, to, when, when it comes to, to materials like that, a, a lot of people think, particularly in, in the fabrics um, and textile world, people think about maybe organic but not necessarily the cruelty part. You know, this is a, it's a very multifaceted topic that we're talking about, this whole area of sustainability, and now the circular economy, you know, we woven into it is becoming more important. Um, yes, it is. I was particularly struck by that, that idea that you, you had actually considered beauty in, in some depth, because it's, it's often a superficial topic, but for you it was, was clearly a much deeper thoughtful topic than just you know, just the external how it looks piece and even the you know the the poets even there i can't remember the name of the poet now that he's the guy that came up with the line about beauty being more than skin deep because mm -hmm. i believe his, yeah. his 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 uh lover or his the woman he was uh chasing after ate drank some chemical and it turned her skin blue and she said i release you from your vow of marriage and he said he said something like darling my love for you is more than skin deep and so right. the beauty is outward and the beauty is inside yeah. you know otherwise uh, another, it's just decoration. right exactly um another element you you talk about is um in, in design terms is the biophilia Say a little bit yes. more about what, what biophilia is than the biophilic, ele biophilic elements that you've, uh, you've thought about. I know you talk about the well, DNA of your materials. Yes. Well, of course, when people talk about uh, biophilic design, it's almost immediately always associated with architecture. Uh, you know, uh, and there's, there's levels of biophilic design. Uh, there's an aesthetic where people might bring imagery of the, of the outdoors into the room, into the workplace, into the home. It might be paintings, it might be graphics that are representations of the natural world. There's a deeper it starts level where- of a, starts of a love of nature. Is, is. There's a love of nature, exactly, yes. And, and expressed in all these different ways. And it can, be, it can be that lighter version I've just described, or you can go deeper where you try to integrate uh, the, the natural world into the environments we live in. And, um, and we see this in architectural design and bringing plants indoors, a simple thing like that, for example, improving mm -hmm. air quality that way. These lovely walls you sometimes see that are like, just like a garden, yeah, uh, natural walls. light, all the rest of it, uh, running water. And, and so we, we, we've taken it through uh, to the love of nature that we've put into the product. 
you know, and, and uh, I, I'm fond of saying nature is the best designer. And uh, I have it on good authority from Aristotle that he felt just the same way. So <laughs> even 3000 years ago or, or approximately. So I think that's, that's good advice then. And it's, and it's just, it, now it's, it was good advice then. And I'd say today with climate breakdown, I'd say it's essential advice because if we don't get right with the natural world, I wonder about the future. Indeed, and you know, the, the common thread in my podcast here is, is and it's called the circularity edge because you know, after a, a lifetime of working on environmental and sustainability related issues, particularly around products, um, I knew there was something missing with the way everybody had been dealing with these topics. And fundamentally, that's when I discovered Bill McDonald and Michael Brongart and what they called cradle to cradle design. This yes. idea that nature operates in cycles and we typically don't. All of our, all of our processes are typically linear. We, we take materials from the earth, we make something from them, we sell and buy products, we use them and then we throw them away. And that, that linear yes. flow multiplied mm-hmm. you know, millions of times with millions of products, billions of products and billions of people is, is, is giving this, this stress um, <clears throat> that you've referred to you know, un, under the umbrella of, of climate change. Um, because that's clearly one of the, <clears throat> the most important topics that's been, been raised. But waste, waste is also an important piece that we're not using things and not reusing things. And I know just on your, your site, you, um, you talked about borrowing materials from the earth and then returning them safely. Say a little bit more about why that was important to you. Well, I think the view we have to have is, you know, we sometimes use words like exploit, but I, I think we have, to, uh, we, we have to recognize that we're custodians. We're only mm-hmm. here for a short time in the length of real time of the, of the life of the planet. And so, you know, even, even in, our, in our religious past, there's that idea of the good steward. And I, I think we have to be custodians of these things. And we have to recognize that we're here for a time and there will be others. Our, our children, for example, their grandchildren and everybody else's. And if we have a sense of reasonable sense of unity and connection to other people, we have to be respectful of that. So if we're custodians, we can't just, you know, you know, tear, as we do in Canada, tear uh, uh, coarse oil out of tar sands, burn it, and not give a damn how it impacts people on the other side of the planet uh, and vice versa. I mean, we have to be mindful of that. And, and so this is why we take the idea, we're just borrowers of it, and we must return it. And if we don't return it, it's a failure, and there's a, there's a terrible consequence for it. A terrible oh, but to me, importantly, you added a word which I think most people miss when they think about just what I would call simple recycling. And, and the circular economy is much, much more than just a you know, simple recycling. You added the word safely, and I think this, this is why I was particularly intrigued to talk to you, you know, that you mentioned the idea of some of this um, stewardship coming from the Bible. I mean, of course, in the Bible, it actually says we have dominion over the earth. But a lot of people misunderstand that as if we, like you say, it's just exploitative. But dominion, it really implies stewardship. But again, I and don't think most people yeah. see it that way. Yeah, it doesn't mean I'm the boss of the earth. It means right. you're responsible. It means right. you're responsible. Right. Exactly. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. And so, yeah it, but it, you it, see, it, but the return safely, this is where I, I find a lot of people misunderstand all of these constructs. Um, and this is particularly true, I find, today with, with the circular economy. You know, a lot of people think it's just recycling on steroids. Oh, okay, we're doing stuff that's bad, therefore we have to, we have to reuse it again and recycle it. Well, no, not if you haven't put in the amount of thoughtfulness that you've done in the materials you're choosing. Because it's in the material choice at the beginning that determines what you can do with it at the end of the use. And so you've obviously made a lot of use of wood in your design. It's a natural material. It can be, can be grown in a sustaining fashion. Yes, I was talking about the, the idea that um, you, know, you put a lot of thought into the material choice mm -hmm. at the beginning that then enables you to have a safe cycle at the end. That there is the return safely was because you made the effort at the beginning to choose materials that were able to cycle safely. And a lot of people just think, oh, you just recycle things. Well, not, not if you've made it of stuff, like you said, the TPI and other, whatever else it is you talk yeah. about, that doesn't have that ability to cycle safely. That's right. So it really should be a banned substance, period. But here's the thing. You mentioned recycling. And I have uh, more recently looped back around to recycling. And I have to say, oh, everybody loves to talk about recycling. And I'm actually getting, I've come to a very negative view about the concept of recycling. And what I recollect, because I'm old enough to recollect it, is we never used to say recycling. We used to talk about the three R's. And we spoke about them always in a particular order. And it was number mm -hmm. one, reduce. It was number two, reuse. And the third and the last item at the bottom of the list was recycling. Well, reduce and reuse seem to have dropped out of the human vocabulary and uh, uh, on an everyday basis. And recycling alone is really a negative because it perpetuates business as usual. I was talking yeah. to a guy in Europe a few months ago and I was asking for his opinion, and he mentioned the Keurig coffee things. And he said, yes, well, I I said, well what, how do you feel about that? He said, oh, Len, no problem, they're recyclable. And I thought, you're an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> because yeah. that's well, this not- Well, this is the difference, the, 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 right, the difference between potentially able to be, you know, recovered yeah. in some way and versus is it really? Um, and anybody who's ever been in the, back end of a recycling center <coughs> or a municipal solid waste system knows that those things are too small to even be caught in any machinery, let alone, you know, collected and, and re-aggregated. But you, you make a good point about the, the, the R's and, and there are more than just the three R's that everybody's conventionally thinking about. And you introduced another one in your design, which is repair. And so you have replaceable parts and you talked about in, in, on the website about the right to repair, and I think this is an important piece too, because re the repair cycle, making something have the ability to be usable for longer, is a super important concept inside the circular economy. And like you say, it's higher up the hierarchy than recycling. As you say, recycling should be the last thing you do. Yes, that's right. So and tell really, us a little bit about the replaceability elements that you put into your design. Well, it's replaceability as opposed to planned obsolescence. And, and of course, if when you start to actually have proper thinking about planned obsolescence, what you come to realize is it's a it's a greedy scheme, because if you make a product cheaply um, and you plan for it to be purchased and then to be 
quickly or relatively quickly replaced, then you get sales churn and you can increase your volume of sales. So really, mm -hmm. plant obsolescence is a, a form of exploitation. And that's all it is. And people used to talk about it years ago in the automobile industry, for example, that it was very common. You know, we're never satisfied with what was good five years ago or 10 years ago. Something must be new, shinier and brighter. And that's also yeah. part of a, a well, a well researched and well documented um, way of looking at the infantilization of the adult population of the Western world, where, where uh, everybody's focused on bread and circus and, 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 uh, and um, games and watching Netflix, uh, you know, every night and binge watching it and all the rest. We still have to think. And so the right to repair is that that's for thinking people, you know, like you may pay more for an item that is of good quality, but the, 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 the cost of the utility of it over many years is so much better if you can repair it. And I, I remember my dad, he brought some of his tools from Britain to Canada. Mm -hmm. And you know, all those, he's passed now, but all those years, he had the same tools he had after he got out of the army. He still had the same tools, yeah. you know, in, in the basement of the garage. And, and I still and, have some of my dad's in, the, in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. But if you go, uh, we have a big uh, outlet, I guess it'd be like maybe like Pet Boys in the United States. We have Canadian Tire, which is a big hypermarché of home goods and everything from tires to coffee makers and everything else. And, and you know, you look at those tools and you say, how long is that going to last? You know, you really wonder. Yeah, some of so them really, are certainly it, not made to last. What, what would yeah, you right, say? Right what would you say with, with the ability to repair? And, and given the choice of materials you've made, what would what, what you say you've, how far have you extended, do you think, that typical use period that you said was seven or eight years in the UK for the typical bed, in, in the US for a typical bed? Um, you know, how, how much longer do you think your bed can be reused for? A responsible owner can use the bed all of their life and they, then they can pass the bed along. Because, you know, obviously some of the textile components it's possible they could wear and get damaged. Some of the, mm -hmm. comp, uh, you know, and the other thing is, is everybody sleeps differently. So, right. you know, if, if, so if someone's a very heavy sleeper, if they live in bed, I suppose it would wear out sooner than if they just went into bed for seven or eight hours a night. But you, you can replace and keep going and going and just change out a part. And that buttoning system that we've designed for the bed, mm -hmm. there's an aesthetic to it that yes, I think is sure. comforting. It's, a, it's comforting and familiar to see those big knobs. And I realized mm -hmm. after I had designed it that way, I thought, gosh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a wooden cabinet in our living room. It's from 1860, and it's an old Quebec pine cabinet. And the, the big knobs on the chest of drawers part of it, they're almost the same. They almost look mm, exactly the same as they did back in the 19th century. So that it's got beauty, but it's functionality and, and it's low tech. So we, you know, we, a lot of people making a bed that would have a cover come off. I've seen them. They'll use Velcro. Well, we can't use right. Velcro because mm. Velcro is a poor imitation for a thistle, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, ha we had to have a simple way to do it that any, anybody could just, un they don't need any tools. They don't need an Allen key from Ikea. They just need to take their fingers and undo the buttons, pop it open 
and they could change out the mattress component. They could even change out a piece of the suspension. And therefore, so that, 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 it, it, it could go on their whole life. And, and the frame and the suspension components, there's no reason why they can't last as long as that 1860 cabinet we have at home here. Right, right, makes sense, yeah. So in your, in your opening remarks, you talked about where you live in Deep Cove. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, for me, place is very important. When we came on the um, recording here together before I actually pressed record, you know, we, we talked about where each of us came from and we both have a history in the Northwest of, of England. And it's interesting that we started the conversation that way because I think place where you actually are as well as where you originally came from is, is an important piece. You know, for me, all sustainability is local. That if you delivered a bed to me here in Charlottesville, Virginia, the ultimate you know, use of that is, is here, not in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So um, what is there about Deep Cove that's helped influence your thinking? Well, you know, I live in a large urban area called metropolitan Vancouver, but I'm on the North Shore on the other side of the harbor. And uh, we have coastal mountains here. They're not the Rockies, they're further east of us. But we have mm -hmm. these coastal mountains, and they come hard up against the city to the water. And um, at the end, uh, in, in North Vancouver, where I live, there's an, there's an older community called Deep Cove, which ha it literally is a, a crescent-shaped cove uh, that if you go back to uh, the 19th century, they were just tearing, you know, clear-cutting all the trees. But the wonderful thing is the forest grew back and, and we have some old trees, but we also have quite a good heavy forest here right up against these mountains because it wasn't suitable being so steep for early development. So it didn't get developed uh, to the same extent as other parts of the city uh, did. And so we have, a, we have a, 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 a body of water here that is colloquially called Indian Arm, uh, which I think the local uh, indigenous population doesn't really like but that's what the the colonizers called it and it's the it's the most southerly fjord on the pacific coast and it is like a, a norwegian fjord it's extremely long and narrow it's extremely deep and on either side it has very very steep mountains and that that's in uh, i can walk down to the water in minutes from here and i can take a canoe and go around there and be there in just minutes so we have all the amenities of the city but the place is small and it's, it's still quiet because it's a dead end. So there's no way to build a highway to go someplace else. And that's helped keep it small. And so it's very easy to get to the woods and, 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 to, and to smell the sea air. And, and we do that regularly because it's part of the lifestyle here. And uh, I, I realize that that is a kind of spiritual nutrient. And, uh, and a lot of people that live here seem to be of that view. Not everyone, but many. Well, good. I guess it's that's why they, they settled here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's obviously, you know, I could, I could tell from you know, taking some time to look at your website that um, it was an important component, you know, that the place where you are has meaning for you, which I think is, is important it for does. people to think about. What, what, what impact are you having on the place where you are doing what you do? Um, yeah. And, and how can like we this, mitigate things? Where, when it's quiet like this and you can get out of the woods, you know, you get away from all the noise of urban life and, um, and you can think more clearly, I, yeah. I think. I think you can think. 
<laughs> so tell, tell, us, tell us where people can go to find out more and read more about the things we've been touching on. And um... Well, uh, they can go to our website, uh, www.horizontal.eco. And um, that would be nice because we're new and we're building audience. So uh, if anybody wants to visit the site, we're happy to have them and happy to have them subscribe and comment. Even if they're not buying anything, that's okay. Uh, I think for these bigger purchases in one's life, and a, and a bed is a significant purchase, you know, people need to do their investigation and make sure they're making their right choice. And I, I think for a lot of people, and probably not for everybody, I'm sure, you know, we will be the, a right choice for many. Good. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me today. I've, um, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed not only the story and the thoughtfulness that's, you know, gone into your, your thinking and your design, um, but also to meet a fellow ex-Brit from the Northwest. Thank yes. you very much, Len, for, uh, for spending time with us today. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the Circularity Edge podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at www.circularityedge.com. Until next time, bye Circular. Circular.